Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, the Minister of Justice reintroduces legislation to change the rules on medically assisted death. David Lametti will be here to discuss the changes and the urgency. The new leader of the Green Party of Canada, Anami Paul, joins me to discuss breaking barriers and building a bigger green movement. And our panel of journalists on clashes over COVID-19 restrictions and challenges for the new Green Leader. Facing a December deadline, the federal government has reintroduced legislation to amend the law on medically assisted death. A Quebec court ruled a year ago that the existing law is unconstitutional because it restricts a medically assisted death only to those whose natural death is reasonably foreseeable. So change is coming and it has to happen quickly. David Lametti is Canada's Minister of Justice and he joins me now from Parliament Hill. Uh, Minister Lametti, good to see you again. Thanks for taking time to speak with me. Good evening. This bill takes a two-track approach, so let me break it down. First, it proposes to loosen the eligibility rules for those Canadians who uh, are near death and want a medically assisted death. How will that process be easier? Well, look, first of all, let me underscore that that's the vast majority of cases, and that's the, also the, the, the vast majority of cases where people have had some experience with MAID, and that's overwhelmingly positive. What we've done is we have eliminated the 10-day uh, reflection period after a person has made the decision, has gone through all the, the evaluations and, and, uh, and uh, gotten the, uh, the various expert opinions. Uh, there was a 10-day waiting period. All we heard through the course of our consultations across Canada was that waiting period prolonged suffering for people. Uh, and, and we heard that from both families and we heard that from, from uh, made providers. So we've taken that out. We've also um, moved the number of, witness, the number of uh, witnesses uh, signing off mm -hmm. from, from two to one. And we have allowed that witness to be a, a healthcare provider. What happens often, particularly in long-term care or in, in, health, in certain kinds of medical facilities, there isn't any family left. And so people don't know anybody other than the people who are caring for them. And right. so sometimes the people who are caring for them are the best placed to ensure that, that everything has been done uh, with, with full and free consent. Okay, um, and now on the other track, you're also adding tougher rules for those who aren't near death. Tell me about that. Well, look, we heard from, we heard from the disability community in particular that uh, they, they didn't want, uh, that, that, they, that they felt uh, that the reasonable, uh, the criterion of reasonably foreseeable natural death was something that uh, for them uh, went to their dignity and, and went to the equality and value of every human life. Um, what they didn't want to happen was, let's say in the case of a traumatic injury, uh, that a person made a decision uh, to have made quickly without knowing fully uh, what kinds of alternatives uh, would be available for living a life with dignity. And so we've ensured that with a, with a, a longer evaluation period, this is, this is not um, the same thing as the reflection period. Mm. This is the, the period when a person's actually being assessed and, 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 and uh, during that period, uh, we'll make sure that that person, according to the law, that that person has access uh, to knowing 
what kinds of supports are available. Um, and we actually require those discussions to happen before the decision is made. It shouldn't unduly lengthen the process, which would, always, would already have been rigorous, uh, but we're just making sure that, again, decisions are made fully with full autonomy. Uh, once again, it's, it's, it's this twin balance between autonomy okay. uh, and dignity. What happens with requests for medically assisted death where a mental illness is the sole underlying medical condition? There have been a lot of conversation, discussion about that in this country. The existing law bans that. Uh, is that still the case in the new bill? That is still the case. It's the same bill that we presented earlier in the year. Uh, once again, we heard across uh, Canada in our consultations and with experts, as well as from the, uh, as well as from the expert committee, uh, the Canadian Council of Academies that, that wrote a report on it, mm -hmm. there still isn't a consensus there. We still need to do more work. And that would be one of the subjects identified for the full parliamentary review that will take place at some point after uh, this bill is passed. Okay, uh, you've already asked the Quebec court for two extensions. We've had a prorogation that delayed the process uh, even further, and now uh, you have just two months to get these changes through Parliament. Uh, how can you have a, a fulsome debate in Parliament and develop a consensus in that short period of time? Well, look, first of all, there was a great consensus amongst, uh, amongst Canadians, and, and I hope that inspires parliamentarians of all stripes. Uh, to work together to get this done. The second uh, point is that we already introduced this bill in the House of Commons, uh, so there has been some discussion, uh, some review of it already, certainly some back and forth uh, between members across the aisle, uh, as well as uh, some senators who are beginning to look at it. So hopefully we have a head start, uh, but at the end of the day, I, I'm relying on my fellow parliamentarians uh, to really uh, get this bill through quickly uh, because it does represent, I think, a pretty strong consensus of where Canadians actually are at. You've already heard from many experts, uh, I think, in the consultation process that suggested that uh, e even these changes in the bill may, may be still too restrictive. Are you, are you open to any amendments? Well, we're always open to amendment. Uh, we respect the parliamentary process, and, and if, if we haven't gotten something right, we'll be willing to look at it. Uh, that being said, I also remind my fellow parliamentarians and indeed all Canadians that uh, there is a parliamentary review scheduled according to the law that we passed in 2016. That's supposed to look at uh, very difficult questions like mental illness as the sole underlying condition, uh, like uh, advanced, uh, advanced directives or advanced requests, uh, as well as the case of uh, mature minors. So all of those really more difficult and profound issues are things that the parliamentary review is, is uh, meant to look at. Right, the, the, the approach being taken that, uh, I think you talked about that a number of times, that uh, this is to be viewed as a first step in an ongoing process, that uh, these measures and legislation like this is uh, likely to face a, a, a lot of uh, changes in, in the years to come, right? That's correct. We're evolving with Canadian society. I mean, I think what we found in our, in our consultations was that Canadians were ready for the measures that we proposed. We've also added Audrey Parker's amendment to the current package of legislation. Again, Canadians were ready for that. Uh, there are many Canadians who are ready for advance requests. Uh, there are still some who have fears about that, and the same thing with mental illness. We'll have to look at that more carefully, uh, but we will look at that uh, in due course. All right. Uh, Canada's Justice Minister, David Lamenti, good to talk to you. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you very much, Peter. Canada's Green Party has a new leader. 
Annamie Paul won the party leadership Saturday night. She is the first black leader of a national political party in this country. And she replaces Elizabeth May, who led the Greens for 14 years. In a moment, I'll speak with Annamie Paul. But first, some background. Annamie Paul is a fluently bilingual lawyer from Toronto, a second-generation immigrant born to Caribbean parents and a former advisor to the International Criminal Court and Canada's mission to the European Union. She is the first permanent black leader of a major federal political party in Canada. The 47-year-old claimed victory after eight rounds of voting. Her priorities include a guaranteed basic income, free post-secondary tuition, and measures to record police use of force. Paul has also said she wants to tackle systemic racism in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, introduce proportional representation in Canada's voting system, and implement a universal pharmacare program. And the new leader of the Green Party of Canada, Annamie Paul, joins me now. Uh, first of all, uh, Ms. Paul, congratulations on your victory. Oh, thank you so much, Peter. I, I really appreciate that. You are taking over the leadership from Elizabeth May, who spent almost 14 years trying to build uh, growing support for the Green Party. And I guess let's start there. What, what is it you would be doing differently uh, than Elizabeth May has done to try and build the Greens? Well, I certainly wouldn't be uh, trying to uh, trying to deviate from the winning parts of her formula. And there were a lot of them. When we started, we had 6,000 members when she was elected. And uh, we have, uh, I, I don't know the total today because we're still gaining members uh, each day, but the last count was close to 35,000. Uh, and we have three members in our caucus, which is the most that uh, any Green Party in a first-past-the-post system has anywhere in the world. So uh, that's a tremendous uh, um, accomplishment. In my case, I want to make sure that I'm talking about uh, the ways that Green policies uh, are helping Canadians now, the things that we've been talking about for years, uh, like guaranteed livable income and universal pharmacare and long-term care reform. Uh, you know, we're very much known for our climate policies and we're in a climate emergency, but it's important that people in Canada know that we have a 360-degree plan uh, to make life better for them. Hmm. Uh, some of the things you've talked about, those, are, those priorities are, are the same priorities that Liberals talk about, that New Democrats talk about. So what makes the Greens different? That we talked about them first. And we've been talking about them the longest. And even as recently as 2019 in the last election, uh, when I ran as a candidate, we uh, were still the only ones talking about them. Uh, you know, I know that it's, uh, in a 24-hour news cycle, everyone's memory is a lot shorter than it used to be. But in, uh, in uh, 2019, I was out there talking about the need uh, for guaranteed livable income to help people in the constituency I was running in. And I just heard crickets from the Liberals and the NDP. And so if people want uh, the originator, the original source of these ideas, uh, if they want to see more of the same, then they really should be looking at the Green Party of Canada. All right. You, you've drained, during the leadership uh, run in the last couple of days, you've, you've talked about your diversity and how you will use the platform you've now been given to talk about the need for change in Canada. How, how will you try to drive that change? Well, you know, I'm, I'm immediately a conversation starter on that change, right? Uh, I had, I still am having an incredible outpouring of messages from all across the country uh, from people who are saying that uh, now they see themselves in politics and that what they thought was impossible before uh, now feels possible to them. 
And so our green members, uh, in their wisdom, and I thank them for it, really made a very intentional choice to signify that if people are looking for a place of diversity and inclusion, uh, that's the Green Party of Canada. And I, I look forward to uh, spreading the word. You're running for the Greens in the uh, by-election in Toronto Centre on October 26th, but uh, you, you ran in that election as well in, in, in the general election in that riding in 2019. But none of the other parties so far seems inclined to give you a free pass in uh, Toronto Centre by standing down their candidates uh, because you now are the leader of a party to make room for you. In particular, the NDP won't stand down their candidate in Toronto Centre, even though the Greens uh, didn't run a candidate in Burnaby against Jagmeet Singh when he ran for a seat in the House. How do you feel about that? Uh, stoic. <laughs> you know, I, as, as someone who uh, is accustomed to having to overcome a lot of barriers uh, in order to achieve, uh, you know, there's still a lot of barriers uh, that, um, that women like me face. Uh, this is just another one. Uh, I, I left it uh, to the other parties to decide what they wanted to do. Uh, they've made their choice, and so we, we know we are just going to deal with the uh, with the situation uh, that we that we face. You know the facts on the ground. Sure. I mean, you, you finished fourth in, in Toronto Centre in the general election 2019, and uh, you, you have slammed the notion of parachuting in candidates to the riding. So, uh, here's my question: If you don't win there in the by-election, will you run somewhere else? Because if you do run somewhere else, wouldn't that make you a parachute candidate in another riding? Uh, no, I, I am. No, uh, when I talk about parachuting a candidate in, I talk about this. You know, the yet again another candidate that was appointed uh, from outside of the riding to represent people in Toronto Centre. Uh, but in my case, if, if I'm invited uh, by the people in the riding, if I go through the nomination process like any other person presenting themselves to represent that community, then that's certainly not a parachute. And I have no interest in displacing our strong green candidates who did really, really well. And, you know, some of them came in second and got over 25% of the vote. I have no interest in displacing those strong candidates either. So, you know, I, I will only go to communities where I'm welcome. And uh, there are many of them all across the country that have already invited me. It's been very touching. Uh, a lot of Greens campaigned on, on moving the party to the left, some of the other candidates in the race, and they call themselves eco-socialists. Uh, others called for boycotts against Israel. How, how will you deal with those elements who want Greens to make a hard turn left? Well, first, I, I congratulate the other candidates for a wonderful race and for introducing many new ideas uh, into uh, the, the, you know, the conversation in the Green Party. And I would remind people that is what a healthy democracy looks like. That is what a healthy party looks like, where the power isn't all concentrated, where the ideas aren't all the same. Uh, and so that's great. And so in terms of all the new people who joined, in terms of all the people who supported those candidates, I tell them that they're welcome in our party. Uh, as long as they uh, support our core green values, I'm, I'm, well, I'm open to having uh, a very robust conversation with them about uh, the direction we want our party to go in. And so that's the beauty of having core values. You know, we can have those values and then have lots of conversations. Uh, and that's that's a very healthy thing. All right, let's finish on this. I guess the first big test of uh, for your leadership is is deciding whether Greens will vote against the speech from the throne. Uh, what's your decision? 
Well, we've been talking about it at that is the caucus, and Peter, I hope you will uh, stay tuned for our press conference tomorrow. Uh, I can say, uh, perhaps as a preview, that it was extremely disappointing not to hear the party doing things that uh, people in Canada have been waiting a long time for them to do, including um, having a national inquiry into long-term care. Uh, and, and sitting down with the provinces to talk about how we make sure that those, uh, that scandal, um, this ongoing scandal never happens again. Uh, I was very sad to see there was no talk of a guaranteed livable income. And certainly we're in the middle of a climate emergency. And so if you're not talking about real targets that match the science, then, uh, then you're just completely left out of the conversation. All right, Annamie Paul, uh, congratulations once more. And I look forward to a chance to, to chat again. Take care. Thank you so much, Peter. Well, the Prime Minister revealed today that he had a COVID-19 test in early September after feeling a throat tickle. The test was negative. Justin Trudeau joined health officials for a briefing today and expressed growing concern over the spike in new cases in Canada on a day when the Ontario Premier rejected calls to close more parts of the economy. Let's hear briefly from both leaders. I think we were always aware that there was a possibility of a second wave that we needed to prepare for, and we have been preparing for it. Uh, we have new tools. We have uh, record amounts of PPE across the country. We have uh, the uh, COVID alert app, which is uh, there to help Canadians uh, control the spread of the virus. Uh, but obviously, uh, all of that hasn't been enough. We are going in the wrong direction now, which is why it is so important for Canadians to do what is necessary to wear a mask, to keep your distance, to understand that each of us has the power to end uh, this by the choices we make. I want to exhaust every single avenue before I ruin someone's life. It's easy to go in there and say, I'm just shutting down everything. Show me the evidence, hard, hard, concrete evidence. There's thousands of small mom and pop shops. I'm not talking the big conglomerates. I'm talking these people that have put their, they're, they're your neighbors, they're your friends, they're your family members. That weighs on you. I have to have a, a, a balance before I destroy someone's life. Well, let's bring in our panel of journalists now to discuss some of the key stories of the day. Susan Delacourt is a columnist with the Toronto Star. Erica Eiffel is a podcaster and a columnist with the Hill Times. And Joel Denis Bellavance is the Parliamentary Bureau Chief for La Presse. Good to see you all again. Uh, Susan, we heard the Prime Minister and, and federal health officials today talk about the rising COVID-19 numbers and the fact that we're headed in the wrong direction. We heard uh, Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, very reluctant to impose any more restrictions on businesses in that province. Um, we're starting to see, I think, health officials calling uh, for shutdowns in some cases and policymakers trying to balance public safety and the prospect of another big economic shutdown. Where do you think we're headed here? Well, I remember in the early days of COVID, um, a, a couple of people, I think even former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, saying the initial decisions were going to be easy. You know, shutting everything down, you know, using a sledgehammer to get at this thing was going to be easy. The hard thing was when you had to make choices. And we saw Theresa Tam, the Chief Public Health Officer today, talking about that, in that in trying to make these decisions, on what to keep open, what to keep closed. We've got schools open, businesses closed, um, restaurants in trouble, all of that. Um, I think you are, as you say, seeing the tension in that 
Now people are seeing people make choices about things. It's just not one simple either-or, open-closed thing. Mm. And the choices mm. are political. The choices are economic, and the choices are social. And I, I think we've all been feeling it in our own lives, too, is um, you know, talking to people. Can they handle another shutdown? Not just economically, but mentally, too. Yeah. Um, Let me... I think this is... Go ahead. It's the hard part yeah. uh, of this pandemic. Erica, uh, what do you see unfolding here? And do you share some of those concerns that, um, I mean, it, it, the challenge is to get all this right and try to hold as much together uh, as we can, I guess. But uh, what do you see unfolding here? Um, this pandemic was always going to be the constraint for anything else. Um you can't have an economy that's functioning without taking care of this pandemic. And I think what we've seen is that these rush to open up the economy has, um, yes, alleviated some pent up demand. However, um, it, it was quick and it was, it had one thing in mind. And the first thing in mind, I don't think was public health. The other thing, too, is given the cuts that have been made to public health by the same pro like provincial leaders, I have questions about their preparation for this pan um, in terms of of building capacity in the summer when things were sort of alleviating, too. All right. Well, so we've we've seen uh, Toronto Health really stop um, with or reduce the contact tracing. And I do believe that that shows how much of an overcapacity um, the our local health officials are um, experiencing right now. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point, AJD. We're, we're, we've got on the one hand this desire to try and keep things open, uh, reopen more stuff in the face of uh, rising case numbers and a terribly backlogged testing system uh, that can't seem to give us the answers we need at a time when we're trying to uh, do the things we're, we're talking about, trying to open things up. Yeah, and that's an interesting point that you're making. Uh, and, and I'll give you the, the Quebec uh, situation, for example, and I think that it will show because Quebec is, again, the epicenter of, of the virus. Um, the Premier does not want to go back to the scenario of April where everything was shut down for like months and months and months. He wants to keep schools going on. He wants to keep businesses mostly open. Most of them are open in Quebec, except from restaurants, now that I've been shut down again, and, and cinemas and casinos. But the rest of it, the major part of the economy is opening and working. So uh, there is a big debate, what's, what's the economic security and the health security of Quebecers? How do you balance that? And I think, as we mentioned in the spring, uh, most premiers and most leaders are saying, we are building the planes as we are flying in, in the plane. Um, and, and now we're flying, but, you know, there's still a lot of turbulence on the horizon because of this second wave. So um, there is more resistance, I would agree, from governments for, uh, to uh, uh, adapt or um, uh, put in, in, in force the uh, health official recommendations about shutting down most of the economic oh, 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 activity. In Quebec. Oh, OK, Erica, uh, let me turn to you, Erica. Here, Let's talk about Anime Paul, uh, the newly chosen leader of the Green Party first new leader of the Greens in 14 years. What do you think her biggest challenge is in taking over the helm of this party from Elizabeth May? This party seems like it's gone through a lot of internal conflict. I think um, part of her, her first sort of, her first 
thing that she should do uh, should really be uniting the party uh, under her umbrella. I'm, I, I, I see the Green Party as quite messy right now. And it's, I'm glad that they've finally chosen a new leader, but it has not come without scars. And she is going to have to reach across many factions of this party and really unite them under her banner in order to move forward um, with uh, with a definite sort of umbrella of policies that you know Canadians can sort of nibble on. All right, Susan, let me let me let me get your thoughts, Susan. Uh, you know, we know that in the leadership contest, there was a uh, some of the candidates really wanted to push the Greens left. Uh, that's not where they ended up with with Annamie Paul, who's viewed by most people as maintaining a lot of the policies they have now. What do you think the big challenge is going to be for her? Uh, getting elected and getting into the House, and actually, literally taking over from Elizabeth May. Um, as long as Elizabeth May is the public face of that party inside the House of Commons, there is going to be, this has been a problem, tension inside the Green Party about this, that it was a party of one. She's got an enemy, Paul, as impressive as she is, has to turn it into a party of many. And she does have to, I, I think to do that, she's going to have to become the parliamentary leader as well as the leader of the Greens. Yeah, and, and in facing that, she, she's running in the by-election, Joelle Denis, in, in Toronto Centre at the end of October. And uh, one of the stories today is that uh, she, she was very restrained when I spoke to her earlier in our program, but the fact that other parties won't uh, provide a leader's courtesy of allowing her to run unchallenged in that by-election. Uh, but Elizabeth May was pretty critical, especially of Jagmeet Singh, saying, look, we stood down our candidate in Burnaby when he ran for the leadership of his party. He should be doing the same now. But nobody seems, uh, none of the other parties seem to uh, want to do that. So how big of a problem is that going to be, her getting elected? That's the, the big test for her, and it's coming soon in three weeks. And the odds are not favoring the Green Party in Toronto Centre. It's the old writing of uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau, so it's going to be a difficult task. And uh, and I think the other challenge, if we may talk about her challenge, getting elected is one, but the second one would be get the, to be known across the country. I don't think she's a known uh, political person right now. And she would probably... Um, could use the time that if she doesn't win the by-elections to travel the country and get herself known to Canadians in Quebec. And she had a solid start today, both in English and French. Her French is very impressive. I was very impressed. Uh, she could pivot very fast on either, both languages, uh, answering questions. So she masters her own files, and I think she uh, can bring back unity quickly. But the challenge is get to be known and get a seat in the House of Commons. All right. And Erica, let me come back to you quickly in, in, in terms of uh, some have suggested that uh, with uh, Annamie Paul as a leader of the Green Party now, it opens up a, a whole new audience to that party and presents a challenge perhaps to some of the uh, traditional base of the Liberals or the Democrats. Uh, yeah. And that's what's exciting about it. I'm excited, to be honest. Um, the... Uh, the by-election that's coming up, I believe she will, I believe Marcy Ian is, uh, the Liberals are running right. Marcy Ian for that. And um, I got to say, I let's not take away from the fact that this is a historic win for her. And, you know, momentum has its privileges, I will say that. And I would say, um, I agree uh, with my colleague where, if she does not win the by-election, then she needs to communicate who the Green Party is, 
what their vision is for this country. And my hope is that she will challenge the NDP for their traditional base and then start eating into um, perhaps more progressive liberals. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, anything's possible with COVID. Yeah. <laughs> Susan, is that, a, is that a tougher challenge than, than maybe it sounds? Uh, especially, as you point out, if, if she doesn't win in a by-election, who knows when she will get elected? And then the face of the party in Parliament continues to be Elizabeth May. Especially during a time of COVID when it's very much more difficult to travel the country, as uh, you know, we saw during the Conservative leadership race. Um, it's it's very hard to to uh, to get momentum and public attention uh, via virtual Zoom calls, right? So right. Um, I think one of her great strengths has been in person, uh, and the Green Party did have historic turnout for this. But I think during the time of COVID, it's very hard to do that. All right, the story will continue to follow. Thank you all for your time today. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Everyone take care. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. From all of us here at CPAC, I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks again for watching.